Welcome to the serialized audiobook Nocturnal by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler, performed by Phil Giganti. This novel contains adult situations, violence, and is meant for mature audiences. Nocturnal is available in print, ebook, and unabridged ad free audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash nocturnal. Chapter 46 The Rude Awakening Pookie's eyes opened slowly to nothing but whiteness. Don't take me back to the white room. That's what Aggie James had said. Terrified, freaked out Aggie. Pookie blinked against the pain in his throat. He reached up to touch his neck. His hands felt metal. A collar. Mm, he's awake. Pookie sat up and looked around. He was in a circular white room. All around him were people with collars, chains leading from the collars through metal flanges in the white walls. Rich Verdi, Jesse Shero, Sean Robertson, Mr. Biznas, Baldwin Metz, Amy Zhao, twin girls with black hair on either side of her, clinging to her. Pookie stood. He looked from person to person. What the hell is this? Rich tilted his head toward Zhao. Ask her, he said. She sold us out. Zhao dipped her head, pulled her girls in tighter. She squeezed them. One of the girls was crying hard, her body shaking with tired sobs. The other stared out with murderous eyes through scattered heavy black hair, as if she was looking for someone to hurt. Pookie turned back to Rich. Rich had never looked like a pleasant person, but now he stared at Chief Zhao like he'd put a fire axe in her head the first chance he got. Verdi, what do you mean she sold us out? Rich spit in her direction. Lying whore! Knock it off, Robertson said. She had to do it. They killed her husband. They took her daughters. The Mason Tunnel murder was a setup. She called me, Jesse, Rich, Metz, got us all to the tunnel, and then these things took us. Robertson wasn't wearing glasses, not that they would have fit over his horribly swollen right eye. A cut on his head oozed a thin trail of blood. Someone had worked him over real solid. Pookie wondered what their assailants had looked like. Then he realized he didn't want to know. His own run-in with Beaknose and the human snake was plenty to think about. Maybe Zhao had had a choice, maybe not. All Pookie knew was she had sold him out, sold Brian out, and if there had actually been a fire axe within reach, Pookie would have sharpened it, polished it, then handed it to Polyester Rich with a dramatic flourish. Pookie took a better look around the room. A floor of white-painted stones, walls of the same material curving up to form a domed ceiling, and the white bars of a jail door. So where the hell are we? Robertson shrugged. We don't know. Underground, we think. Mary's children have us. We are fucked. You should have seen the monkey thing that came and took me. We are so fucked. At least they'd left Biz his voice box. He had to jam it up under his collar to talk. Pookie tried the collar again. Tight. Solid. 
didn't feel like he'd be able to get it off. Behind the collar, a heavy chain led into the back wall. There was a way out of this. There had to be. He would not die down here. Down here. With the cannibals. Chief, he said. What happens now? He could judge her later. All that mattered now was getting out of here alive. She pulled her daughters a little closer, but stayed quiet. Answer him, Verdi said. He pulled at his collar, as if it was the only thing stopping him from attacking her. You traitorous cunt, answer him! She looked up. Her eyes. Pookie wasn't even sure if she knew where she was. Amy Zhao had gone bye-bye. A metallic sound clanged through the walls. Pookie was yanked backward by his collar. He stumbled, tried to stay on his feet. His back hit the wall. The collar clanged into something, and the pulling stopped. Pookie tried to pull away, but he couldn't budge. A squeal of metal drew all eyes to the opening jail door. A fat old lady walked in. She wore a dowdy, knee-length dress, a gray sweater and a babushka, yellow with a pattern of purple plums. You are all criminals, she said in a voice as pleasant as you'd expect from a wrinkled grandma. It is time for your trial. She stepped back out of the white room. A swarm of men rushed in, all wearing hooded white robes and rubber masks. They filled the room, groups of them moving to each chained person. As if that weren't surreal enough, the first one to rush Pookie looked like the Burger King. Pookie threw a straight right jab that knocked the king off his feet, then quickly went down under the weight of the others. Chapter 47 Cloaks and Daggers John Smith didn't know what to think. His Harley roared down the street. He followed the black station wagon. For once, he wasn't afraid of some random gunman. He didn't have the bandwidth to fear them, not with trying to process what he'd seen. That woman had delivered electrical shocks with metal whips. Did the whips generate the shocks, or did she generate them? Oh, and the small detail that he'd shot her in the face. Instead of hitting the deck and joining Club Body Bag, she jumped out of a third-story window. She should have been a broken thing on the sidewalk, but when he got down to the street, she was gone. And it wasn't just the girl with the chains. What was the deal with the gigantic bony head? Robin had shot that man four or five times at point-blank range, yet the man had stood up. So, yeah, maybe there were worse things to fear than snipers. Robin, dead. Murdered like a goddamn drug lord, gunned down in her own apartment. And her last words to John. Looks like you're not afraid to be a cop anymore. Well, she was wrong about that. He was still terrified, but Brian needed help, and that was that. Lives were in danger. Time to step up and do his part. The Magnum's brake lights flashed. The car pulled into the parking lot of a closed Walgreens. The drugstore itself was on one side of the empty lot. Two-story buildings lined the rear and the other side, creating a walled-in space viewable only from the road. The Magnum drove to the back and parked. John pulled up next to it. Brian got out of the station wagon, a flat black pistol in his right hand. 
A mask, the same color as his peacoat, hung down over his face. He looked around, then aimed the pistol up at a corner of the parking lot and fired. A camera erupted in a small cloud of sparks. He did it again with a second camera. Another look around to be sure he'd got them all. Then he opened the front passenger door, reached in with his left hand and dragged out a black man by his neck. The man had a handcuff locked on his right wrist. The cuff's partner dangled free from the short chain. John didn't recognize the guy. Brian pulled the man to the front of the magnum, then pushed until the man sat on the hood. You came out of a muni tunnel at the Civic Center, Brian said. You're going to show us where. The man shook his head, shook it hard. No, sir, I don't know where I was. Still holding the man's neck, a masked Brian leaned in. Aggie, you're going to show me. The man, Aggie apparently, shook his head so hard his lips bounced from side to side. No way, I'm not going back there. Brian's right hand came up. The barrel of his gun pressed into Aggie's left cheekbone. John's hand shot inside his motorcycle jacket to the handle of his own weapon. Brian, stop it! John, Brian said without turning around. You're either with me or you're an obstacle. Back off. Brian was way past the edge. If John moved too fast, if he did anything wrong... That poor guy's brains could splatter all over the car's hood. Brian had already killed one person that night and acted like he wouldn't hesitate to kill another. Backing off, John said. Just take it easy. The Magnum's driver's door opened and a man got out slowly. John didn't recognize the heavily pierced 30-something rocker. Brian pushed the gun in a little harder, tilting Aggie's head to the right. Aggie's eyes scrunched up tight. I don't know you, Brian said. I don't care what happens to you. You're either going to take me into that tunnel and show me where they kept you, or I'm going to pull this trigger. Aggie's breath came in fast, short bursts. Tunnel is hidden, he said through clenched teeth. Don't know where it is exactly. Brian shook his masked head. Not good enough. The rocker raised his hands, palms out. Cop, listen, he can't help us. Erickson has been hunting for their lair for 50 years. He never found it. I'm not Erickson, Brian said. John thought of going for his gun again, but that would only aggravate Brian. Any added stress could make him pull that trigger. Come on, Terminator, snap out of it. He's just a civilian. Brian leaned in until his eyes were only an inch from Aggie's. You're going to take me down there, Aggie. I know that'll scare you, and I don't give a shit. The only way you see the sunrise ever again is if you show me what I want to see. Aggie opened one eye. He raised his eyebrow in an expression of a man hopeful to make a deal. The baby? Brian shook his head. No fucking way. Aggie opened the other eye. He stared back with fearful defiance. Then shoot me. I'd rather eat a bullet than go out the way they do it. Brian paused. He nodded. 
Okay. You take us in there and I'll see what I can do. But I can't promise anything. If you did promise, I'd know you was lying, Aggie said. Now can you let go of my throat and get that goddamn gun out of my face? Brian leaned back, pulled Aggie to his feet. Brian's right hand slid behind his back and into a hidden slot in the peacoat. Like a magician's trick, presto, changeo, the pistol vanished. One more thing, Aggie said. I ain't going without a gun. Brian seemed to consider this. No way, John said. Brian, he's a civilian. Do you even know this guy? Brian turned. Green eyes stared out through mask slits. He's taking us down. The man wants a gun. The man gets a gun. Brian turned to the rocker. Adam, let's see what you've got. Brian started walking to the back of the station wagon. Hold on, John said. Brian, what the hell is going on? Taking us down? Down where? And would you lose that retarded mask? Brian lifted the black fabric and tucked it somewhere in the back of his skullcap. He suddenly seemed like the old stone-faced Brian, emotionless, save for a wide-eyed anger that didn't waver. The monsters have Pookie, he said. Aggie said there's a tunnel complex under the city. If Pookie is alive, that's where Rex took him. I'm going in there to get my partner, and to get some payback for Robin while I'm at it. Payback for Robin? That was obviously shorthand for, I'm going to kill anything that moves, and I want you to help me with the slaughter. You said Rex. You mean Rex deprived Chuck? That little kid? Brian nodded. He's the leader of the monsters. Marie's children. The things with the Z chromosome that Robin told you about. Whatever you want to call them. I don't have time for this, John. I'm going to get Pookie. Those things in Erickson's basement we told you about. Aggie says there are hundreds of them down there. That's where I'm going. You can come with me or you can leave. They'd taken Pookie. Robin hadn't done anything to anyone, yet they'd killed her. She wasn't the first person killed by Marie's children. The cult, or monsters, or whatever the hell they were, had a centuries-long history of murder. On top of those things, the man who had saved John's life was asking for help. John nodded. I'm in. Brian slapped him on the shoulder. Good man. Let's get geared up, Adam. Brian walked to the back of the Magnum, and everyone else followed. Another man, much older, got out of the back of the car. He walked with a cane. He offered his hand to John. Older Jessup, he said. The younger fellow there is my grandson, Adam. John shook the older man's hand, a normal action that seemed somehow bizarre considering the situation. I'm John Smith. Inspector John Smith, Brian said. John is a cop. Adam rolled his eyes as he opened the back of the station wagon. Another cop? If I was any luckier, I'd piss rainbows and shit a pot of gold. The older man sighed. Ah, please excuse my grandson. He is on less than friendly terms with law enforcement. 
Metal pull-out drawers packed the Magnum's payload area. Up on top of the drawers, in the narrow space where the driver could see out the rear window, sat Emma. Someone had bandaged the dog's face, wrapping it with gauze and tape that was already stained with her blood. Adam looked at Brian. The rocker rubbed his hands together as if he were about to open a stack of presents on Christmas morning. <laughs> what do you need, cop? Armor, Brian said. Whatever you've got, and firepower. Adam started sliding out drawers as Emma looked down from her perch. John looked all around, then back at the cases full of weapons, then at Brian Clouser. A few hours ago, John had been cowering in his cozy, warm apartment. And now? Brian, are we really standing in a Walgreens parking lot passing out guns so we can find an underground complex and shoot monsters? Brian nodded. That's right. Okay, John said. Just wanted to clarify. Adam reached into a drawer and pulled out what looked like an M16 on steroids. Jesus, John said. Is that an automatic shotgun? Brian jerked his thumb at John. Give that to him. Adam handed it to John, then passed over six full magazines. That's a USAS-12. You know how to use one of those, Piggy Pickerson? I'll figure it out, John said. Knives, Brian said. Adam opened a smaller drawer to show three sheathed knives. Only got three, and I get one. The old man reached out and tapped one with his cane. I get one as well. Adam looked up. He didn't look excited anymore. Grandpa, you can't go in. The old man regally drew himself up to his full height. I've been a part of this for my entire life. If there's a chance we can find the home of these creatures and wipe them out, I'm going. But Grandpa, you... Brian reached in, took a knife and handed it hilt first to Alder. He knows the risks. We don't have time for this. Adam looked angry but he said nothing. He handed the last knife to John. John pulled the K-bar out of its sheath. The flat black blade absorbed the dim streetlights. Only the edge gleamed. A knife, John said. They eat bullets like candy, so you want me to stab them? Brian nodded. The knife is poisoned, just like the blade I put in Big Head's neck. Stab them in the heart, hold it in till they stop moving. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. John hoped he wouldn't get close enough to put the blade to the test. He slid the knife back into its sheath, then attached the sheath to his belt. Adam pulled out another drawer. Inside were three handguns just like the one Brian had. Now John recognized them. FN-57s. Brian grabbed one, 
then held it in front of Aggie. Self-defense only, Brian said. You will show us where to go, but I don't expect you to fight. And if you point this weapon at me or anyone else here, even by accident, you'll be dead before you have a chance to realize how stupid you are, understand? A wide-eyed Aggie nodded and took the gun. Brian handed an F in to Alder and one to John. Adam passed out magazines. John was running out of room to hold it all, so he made a little pile at his feet. Adam again rubbed his hands together. Now the good stuff. He pulled a case out of the back and set it on the pavement in front of him. He opened it, then turned it toward the others, as if it were a display case of fine jewelry. John looked in the case and wondered if it wasn't too late to get on his Harley and just start driving to anywhere but here. Aggie leaned in. Grenades? Yup, Adam said. Cool, Aggie said. Can I have one? Brian shook his head. Not for you. Adam pointed to the twelve grenades packed into the black foam in three rows of four. Four thermite, four shrapnel, four concussion. Everyone but Aggie took one of each. John looked down at his pile. USAS-12, FN-57, magazines for both, three grenades. How the hell am I supposed to carry all this? Adam smiled. That's the best part. He pulled out another long drawer, the biggest of them all. He reached in and handed over a bundle of cloth. John held it, let it unfold. It was a dark green cloak with a hood. You've got to be shitting me, he said. Put it on, Brian said. When this is all done, you're still a cop. You need to hide your face. It's all armored up. Might save your life. Adam handed another cloak to Alder, who rested his cane against the magnum and started to put it on. Adam pulled one more thing out of the case, a jacket like Brian's. Hey, John said, nodding at the jacket. Can't I have that instead? Adam shook his head. I made it. I get to wear it. He slid it on, then looked at John. Put on the goddamn cloak already. John did. He slid into the sleeves. The front zipper turned out to be magnetic, a simple strip that sealed tight when he pressed it together. Inside the cloak, he found several deep pockets. He scooped up his toys and put them away. Brian took off his hat. He undid the mask and looked at the dangling fabric. Adam, you got a marker. Something I can use to draw on this. Adam looked at him with a why-would-you-want-that expression, but he didn't say a word. Instead, he reached for another case, opened it, then handed over a white paint pen. Will that do? John watched Brian take the pen, look at it, and smile. It wasn't a healthy smile. Time to go, Brian said. John, you're in the car with us. Brian opened the back door. Aggie in the middle. We need to talk on the way there. Aggie got in, followed by Brian. Alder climbed in the other side, leaving John the front passenger seat. John looked at his Harley and wondered again if he should just get on it and get the hell out of here. His apartment was ten minutes away. He'd spent six years afraid of his own shadow. And now Brian wanted him to go into tunnels and shoot monsters? John wanted to leave, but he couldn't. Not if they had Pookie. He got in the car and shut the door. 
Brian sat in the back, drenched in shadow. He took off his hat, opened the pen, then started to draw something on the mask. Aggie, while we drive, you tell me everything you can about what happened to you in those tunnels. About everything you saw. Adam, get us to the Civic Center station fast. The Magnum's big engine growled as the station wagon rolled out of the Walgreens parking lot. Chapter 48 The Crown Blindfolded and bound, hanging from a pole like a butchered pig, Pookie bounced in time with the steps of his captors. His wrists and ankles hurt from two tight ropes, from his own weight pulling against his bones. He lost track of how long they carried him. Fifteen minutes? Thirty? Through tunnels so narrow he felt dirt walls scraping against his left and right sides at the same time. At one point, they had set him down and dragged him through an area so tight, Pookie felt the earth pressing into his back and face as well. Finally, the echoing noise of a crowd and a sensation of openness told him he'd entered a much larger area. Was this where he would die? Would it be quick? Hands lifted him to a standing position. The knots around his wrists and ankles were cut free, but those same hands, strong hands, held him so tight he couldn't even try to escape. New ropes wrapped around his chest, his stomach, his legs. The ropes pulled him tight against a thick pole at his back, but at least he stood on his own feet again. The blindfold came off. Pookie blinked as his eyes adjusted to the lights. He was in a wide cavern. About thirty feet up, a ledge lined the wall like the deck of a football stadium. A ledge lined with... Mary, Mother of God. People and monsters, hundreds of them stood up there, looking down at Pookie and the others. On his left, tied to vertical poles, he saw Rich Verdi, Mr. Biznass, Sean Robertson, and Baldwin Metz. On his right, Jesse Shero, Chief Zhao, and then her two little girls. Pookie pulled at his ropes, but his body didn't budge. What was he standing on? Broken wood? He craned his neck, trying to take everything in. It looked like he was on the deck of a shipwreck. He faced the broken prow. If this was an old ship, which was impossible, the pilot house would be somewhere behind him. Only fifteen feet away, a mast rose up from the deck, a mast covered with human skulls. Thirty feet up, a wooden pole crossed that mast, making a big T. And there, still dressed in a hospital gown, hung a crucified Jebediah Erickson. Spikes driven through torn flesh held his bloody hands to the wood, pinned his bloody feet to the mast. The old man was awake. He was obviously in great pain, but he also looked pissed as hell. He tried to shout something, but the gag in his mouth kept him from forming words. On his left and right, lights clustered each end of the tee. Flaming torches, as well as the mismatched electric rigs you'd see on a construction site. The crowd started to cheer. Someone walked past Pookie's left, between him and Rich Verdi. It was the boy, Rex de Pravdachuk, dressed in a red velvet cape. Was he wearing a crown? He was. A crown of twisted iron and polished steel. Jesus, deliver me from this evil. Rex looked up to the crowd on the ledge. He spread his arms outward like a stage performer, turned left, 
then right, so they could all see him. The crowd screamed for him. Some screams sounded human, some didn't, but they all resonated with righteous rage. Something sniffed at Pookie's right ear. He tried to flinch away, but he could barely move. He turned. He was only inches from the yellow-eyed gaze of the snake face. Clean, the snake said quietly. We don't get that often, but things are changing. Out front, Rex raised both hands high, then dropped them. The audience fell silent. When he spoke, his adolescent voice echoed off the cavern's walls and ceiling. For centuries they have hunted us, the boy said. And this one, he pointed up at Erickson, has killed more of us than any other. Firstborn could not deliver him to you, but I have. The crowd roared again. Hundreds of monstrous creatures shook their fists. They screamed. Some even jumped up and down like a revival meeting. The boy raised and dropped his hands again, cutting off the cheers, commanding everyone's attention. His diminutive size didn't seem to matter. He had an aura about him, the charisma of a born leader. Pookie couldn't look away. Soon, we will pass judgment on the monster, Rex said. But first, we have criminals to put on trial. Rex turned to look at Pookie and the others, and for the first time, Pookie saw the madness in the boy's eyes. Rex was psychotic, drunk with power, smiling a madman's smile. If there had ever been a normal boy inside Rex Depravdichuk's body, that boy was gone. Rex pointed. Pookie shuddered, thought Rex was pointing at him, but Rex was pointing to Pookie's right. A white-haired Jesse Sherrow, his blue uniform streaked with tunnel dirt. Bring him forward, Rex said. Let the trials begin. Chapter 49 Civic Center Aggie had changed his mind. There was a god, and whatever god was, it hated Aggie James. The Magnum pulled into the parking lot of Trinity Place at Market and Eighth. The psycho cop on his left finished his drawing and dropped his pen on the floor. He held up his black mask, examining his handiwork. Aggie stared at the design. What did I ever do to deserve this? You ain't much of an artist, Aggie said. Klauser nodded. I'm not looking for fans. The mask had already been disturbing enough. With the paint pen, the crazy cop had added a childish, skull-smile line drawing that glowed an electric white against the flat black fabric. And this man, this scary-ass Brian Clouser, was going to force Aggie back into the tunnels. If going in meant there was a chance Aggie could get his baby back, he had to take it. He had a plan. He just had to wait for the right moment, have a giant set of balls, and hope to finally get some luck to fall his way. The cop set the skullcap mask in his lap. Everyone listen up, he said. The entrance to the Civic Center station is right behind us on the sidewalk. At this hour, the station is probably closed, so we shouldn't run into anyone. We walk out of the car and head straight down. 
There's cameras all over, and we can't get them all, so ignore them and just descend. If there are any BART cops, I'll handle them. We move fast. We'll be down there in 20 seconds and into the main tunnel before anyone can react. Muni trains have stopped running this late, so Aggie will lead us right off the platform and into the tunnel. Right, Aggie? Aggie nodded. Good, Clouser said. Everyone does what I say when I say it. Hoods up, tuck your weapons in, and let's go. Wait, Aggie said. I need one more thing. The cop stared at him with those cold eyes. He put the black skull cap on, then lowered the mask. The white skull smile grinned. You already asked for one more thing, Aggie. What do you want? Time for the giant set of balls. It was now or never. A badge, Aggie said. I know we're going to fight monsters and all that, but cops are going to show up and I already got two strikes. If you all get killed, I need enough bullshit to get away. The skull smile shook his head. No way. Then I ain't going. Aggie crossed his arms and gave his best hard stare. He'd never been much of a poker player, but now everything was on the line. Brian Clouser stared back. Angry green eyes glared through slits. The skull smile grinned. Fuck it, he said. Not like I'm going to need this thing anymore. He reached into a pocket and handed over his badge. Aggie took it, amazed that his bluff had worked. Now all he had to do was stay alive just a little bit longer. Time to go, Clouser said. Everyone follow me. If you fall behind, you're on your own. Aggie, you stay with me and don't try anything. Doors opened. Out of the black station wagon stepped two men in hooded cloaks, two men in black peacoats and black masks, and a scared, shitless black man with a gun and a badge. They crossed the dark parking lot to the brick sidewalk, then to the U-shaped concrete wall surrounding the escalator down to the subway. Terror tried to tangle Aggie's feet. He felt like his head might explode, like he might go crazy at any moment. He was going back down. Maybe he was already insane. Aggie kept moving for one thing and one thing only. For the baby. Clouser went down first. Everyone else followed. Chapter 50 Innocent Until Proven Guilty The biggest man Pookie had ever seen held Jesse Shero tight. Only it wasn't a man. It was two men. One with a professional wrestler's size and a tiny head. The other with a withered body, a huge head, and a tail wrapped around the bigger one's thick neck. A bunch of monsters stood on the shipwreck's prow. The snake face, Tiffany Hines' dog face, who wore a too small tuxedo jacket and orange Bermuda shorts, a black-haired girl with a pair of chain whips curled on her hips, a tall, black-furred, cat-faced man wearing jeans and a black fur cape, the wrinkled old babushka lady, and a little guy with wire-rimmed glasses and an obscenely distended belly who kept flicking a gold Zippo lighter. These creatures, along with the two men in one, seemed to have some privileged standing with Rex. Rex stood on the prow's farthest point, arms again raised to address the audience. You have heard the arguments! Now we must pass judgment! 
There hadn't been any arguments, just a long list of accusations against Shero. Accusations like aiding and abetting murderers, conspiring to kill people, being a bully, and hating on us like a dick. They were the accusations of an awkward teenage boy who suddenly had all the power in the world. Rex raised his left fist, his thumb pointed in parallel to the ground. The crowd roared, Guilty! Guilty! Jesus, the kid thought he was a Roman emperor or something, and this was his Colosseum. Rex turned slowly, letting everyone see his fist, his thumb. He gazed up at his people, his eyes wide with murder, his upper lip curled and his teeth gleaming in the lights of the ship's skull-encrusted mast. Guilty! Guilty! Rex lifted up on his toes, then pointed his thumb down. Servo, he said. Carry out the execution. Pookie shook his head in denial, pulled at the ropes, wished for a miracle. The big one lifted Shero and set him down on the deck. A sprawling right hand the size of Pookie's chest pressed down on Shero's stomach, holding the police captain in place. Shero's blue uniform, which had always been so clean and perfectly creased, was covered with dirt from the long haul to the ship. Please, Shero said. Please. The little one crawled higher to perch on top of the big one's head. Tails still wrapped around the big one's neck. He stood on emaciated, spindly legs. He looked down at Shero. For the king, Fort, finish him. The big man raised his left hand to the sky and made a fist. Guilty! Guilty! No! Shero grabbed at the hand on his stomach. He punched. He scratched. He even lifted his head to bite, but his mouth wouldn't reach. The fist slammed down on Shero's chest, crushing him like a fluid-filled light bulb. Blood sprayed out of his mouth, the droplets arcing high into the air to fall on the deck, the dirt, and on Shero himself. His legs and arms spasmed briefly, then fell limp. The monster stood. Shero's bloody chest had been smashed flat. He didn't move, didn't twitch. He was just gone. Rex pointed at the corpse. Remove the criminal! White-robed men scrambled out from somewhere behind Pookie. Four of them lifted the shattered body which flopped in the middle as if the chest were the broken spine of an old blue book. As the masked men carried the body past Pookie to somewhere behind, Pookie closed his eyes. Jesus, save me from this madness. Him! Rex's voice again. Pookie couldn't look. Was Rex pointing his way? Would he be the next one to face the boy's judgment? No, leave me alone! the voice of Dr. Metz. Pookie opened his eyes to see the white-robed men dragging the silver-haired medical examiner up to the prow. Rex was watching, nodding, smiling wide with a closed-jaw grin. Bring that bully here, Rex said. Let the next trial begin.
You have been listening to Nocturnal by Scott Sigler, performed by Phil Giganti, produced by Empty Set Entertainment. The Nocturnal audiobook was directed and engineered by Corey Young. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.